been amazing to see what's happened in Montreal. And since Valerie Plant was elected, I mean, that, that election where she won, the animal welfare was on the ballot for people. They were actually voting for the end of the collection industry. They were vo- voting for the end of BSL legislation in Montreal. So it was really inspiring to see democracy be affected by uh, those animal policies. The Goldwaters is brought to you by Goldwater Dubé, shaping the history of Canadian family law since 1981. The Goldwaters vous est présenté par Goldwater Dubé, modeler l'histoire du droit familial canadien depuis 1981. Welcome back to the Goldwaters. Nice to be back with Anne France after a bit of a hiatus. How are you, Anne France? I am excellent. How are you, Dan? Good, thank you. Samantha and Daniel will return soon, but this is an animal rights issue, an animal rights podcast, so this is all you. And uh, we're going to get to our guest, Camille Labchuk, of the Paw and Order podcast in just a few minutes. But first, uh, Anne France, if you could catch us up on some of what you've, you've been doing lately with Goldwater Dubé and, um, and the Shadow case, the case of this pit bull in Montreal, who uh, you've been trying to save for quite some time, and a decision is expected soon. Just so. Well, as you know, we had our hands full here for a year or two fighting Montreal's original breed-specific legislation. And when that succeeded with the election of the ever-wonderful Valérie Plante, we had a couple of months of quiet because she was busy doing the work for us, changing the Montreal bylaw and getting rid of caleches, you know, horse-drawn carriages in Montreal. So we really felt we had a, a, the right kind of animals' right advocate at City Hall. But then came the case of Shota, the pit bull type dog. And I'm sure everybody read, let's say, a little over-dramatized and over-exaggerated story uh, about a pit bull type dog who had attacked some children in a house in Montreal North. So it's known as the case as the case of the dog in Montreal North. And the dog was seized by the police and given over to the SPCA, where he has languished since, I think, last August already, until my son Daniel and I stepped in to do something for this dog, as usual, pro bone. Oh, so one day this dog will receive an invoice for six meaty bones that I will then get to chew on. That's what pro bono means, four bones. So, uh, all joking aside, uh, we found out what had really happened. What had really happened is there's a young woman who owned a pit bull type dog called Shota, whom she bought from a breeder who's a year and a half old and who has always been completely safe and reliable with people and with children. And she was pregnant. She went into labor prematurely and had to have an emergency C-section. And then after she gave birth to her child, she found she was extremely physically week, which is no surprise to any woman who's gone through a C-section. And she needed somebody to take care of her dog for a week or two weeks or so. And this too also on doctor's instructions. So a friend of a friend, the person who took this dog in was a friend of a friend, the woman who's called in the papers, the grandmother, an undercover agent went to the house, a three-year-old opened the door and led the undercover police officer to the kitchen and she was then arrested. And she did that thing that responsible dog owners do all the time, I mean not, which is leave a bunch of little children with this dog whom they don't know, whom she doesn't know, who is wearing a muzzle 
because the original owner, the mom, is worried, was worried that if the dog is in an environment with another dog that he doesn't know, he could be physically aggressive with another dog. So she gave him with a muzzle on for safety. And this grandmother leaves this dog untended with little children. And it's kind of unclear who all these little children were. She doesn't operate a daycare. Some of these children appear to have been her grandchildren, some not. It's very vague. Somehow the dog ended up with his muzzle off and had bit one of the children. So the grandmother doing like responsible grandmothers do everywhere, left with the the three-year-old, leaving the children alone, (laughs) little children alone, and with the dog in what we French call the entreporte, in sort of the vestibule, but not otherwise secured in any way. So of course, the dog gets out, probably because the kids opened the door. And who knows what those kids were doing or not doing. And I certainly don't want to blame any victims of, uh, of any violence. But they were unsupervised little children with the dog they don't know. And the dog attacked them. And uh, and it was really terrible. I want you to understand. I don't mean the dog attacked them, just snapped at them. The dog attacked. The police report indicates there was blood everywhere. So it was not a pleasant situation. And people had to come in and beat the dog and like terribly, viciously, like with a lead pipe. And, you know, and I read stories like that. Who are we relying on? Remember, the dog can't come and tell his version of what happened, eh? You got to rely on the version of the humans, including the little unsupervised humans. And uh, when the police came in the scene, the dog apparently was completely peaceful in the hands of uh, on a leash with one of the neighbors. He didn't know. The police even report that when they approached the dog, he was wagging his tail and very happy and had very normal behavior. This is after being viciously beaten, right? And they, the police themselves were surprised at this behavior. So I'm telling you stuff like gospel out of the police reports. And so the dog, of course, was seized and a euthanasia order was rendered. Euthanasia doesn't mean euthanasia. Euthanasia is when somebody is terminally ill or severely wounded and you put the person or the animal out of his misery because there's no hope of survival. Let's call it what it is. It's a kill order, an assassination order, without evaluating the dog's behavior, without even looking for the dog's true owner, right? And and we decided to fight this in court because clearly I have nothing else to do with my life but to go take on a pro bono case of an unpopular dog. But I have always felt in life that our laws, our laws don't exist to protect you and me, people who are respectful and hold the door open for our elders and give up our seats on the bus to pregnant women. Polite people never have to worry about the law of the land. The laws are always tested on the less polite people or animals. And that's when you can tell the strength of your laws. And if we have animal welfare legislation in the province of Quebec, it's not going to be tested on the nice little poodle who weighs 40 pounds and, you know, is always on his leash. It's going to be tested on emergency situations like this. And I argued before the court, I said, look, my son Daniel has found a shelter called Road to Home Rescue in northeastern New York that is prepared to take this dog in. In fact, we even posted $3,000 security for costs to cover court costs and SPCA costs. I went, I also went and gave a thousand bucks to the SPCA myself. I said, please take this money and take care of that dog properly. They said, no problem. It'll go into our general fund. They said they can take in this dog and rehabilitate him. And if he can't be rehabilitated, they have enough land that he can live out his natural life in a normal way without going back into a home. 
Okay. Because they're used to that. And I really like Kim Strong, the director of this refuge, because she doesn't have namby-pamby ideas about good or bad of dogs. You know, every dog has a temperament. And, you know, some dogs are too strong-willed to put in a home environment and you, you have to keep them in a professional environment or in a refuge. I said, I love the way you speak, Kim. That sounds to me like somebody who gets it on public security. And we presented this to the court. And I said to the court, I said to the judge, I said, you know, it strikes me our animal welfare legislation here in the province of Quebec is like a charter of rights for animals. And I said, that's how I want you to read it. I want you to read it as a, a law with particular power because it guarantees to animals the respect of their need for cleanliness, living space, safety, access to food and water, and their biological imperatives. So uh, he looked at me like I was an alien from another planet, and I stomped my pretty little foot and insisted this was a charter of rights for animals. He did not agree and rendered a judgment saying so. It's just animal welfare legislation. It's just another statute. And if a municipality considers it justified to kill a dog, too bad. That was the essential judgment. So I took it before the Court of Appeal, and that's where we are today. I, I have anxiety every morning because now i got to convince three judges of the Court of Appeal to consider our animal safety legislation as a charter of rights for animals. But listen, somebody's got to do the dirty job, and I guess it was given to me to do it. Okay, so on that note, as we await the verdict, and we will update you on uh, an upcoming episode, our episode titled today is The Charter of Animal Rights and Freedoms, and our guest is Camille Labchuk. She's the host of the Paw and Order podcast and a lawyer with animal justice here in Canada. Let's get to the conversation on The Goldwaters. I say, Camille, I'm quite surprised to learn that Canada is taking so much time to adopt a law that would stop uh, animal testing for cosmetics when there's at least 40 uh, countries around the planet that have already adopted such laws in years past. It's actually remarkable, Anne France. Our, our laws in Canada, not just on cosmetics, but on virtually everything at the federal level, are so far behind the other countries. Um, but you're right, this anti-cosmetics testing legislation is moving very, very slowly through Parliament. We've only got, at this point, about six weeks left, uh, even less than that, before Parliament wraps up at the end of June in advance of the next federal election. And because it's been delayed so significantly, it's unfortunately not looking like it's going to pass this time. So we won't even get this legislation passed uh, until perhaps sometime after the election. And, you know, tragically, this is really typical of the way things work in Canada. We've actually never seen a strong animal protection bill passed at the federal level. I think that's finally going to change, not with the cosmetics bill, but with uh, provisions to protect whales and dolphins and shark fin, uh, combating the shark fin trade. I think that's going to pass, but it's always too little too late. Well, I guess that the paradox is that when it comes to cosmetic testing, which is really barbaric, uh, although you, I, I'd like them to see more testing on actual humans, because I'm sure there's plenty of products out there not safe for us, but it's still invisible to the public, whereas sort of thanks to Marine World and uh, parks like that, people can actually relate to the mammals who live in the sea, you know, the supposed killer whales, for instance. And as a, as a result, it's much easier to get people to protest about the treatment of marine mammals and to support getting them returned uh, to the open sea. 
I think that's a really good point. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Labs in Canada are the farthest possible thing from transparent. There is no license required most of the time to operate a lab. Uh, there is no public oversight in most parts of the country of animal labs. There's no inspection reports that the public can access and certainly no video and photographs of what goes on. That um, That's the only time we see these images is if somebody goes undercover and gets a job. So it can be really difficult to motivate people to sort of take action and ask for better laws when they just don't know what's happening. I think that where we're going to see the sea change is in this generation, um, me being the older person here in this conversation, because I think the younger generation has been very sensitized to the fact that we've reached a critical state for the planet where our dominion on the earth, if I can use the biblical expression, has become so massive and overwhelming that if humanity doesn't start changing its path, we're going to end up eliminating and completely destroying the animals that we cherish and that we need to keep this planet functioning. They'd say, what, it's like a million species uh, are at the brink of extinction as we speak now. That's an unimaginable number. Oh, it completely. It really boggles the mind when you try to conceive of the damage that we're doing. And when you look at polls, I, I think you're right. The uh, The younger generations one of their top issues is the environment. And this, of course, includes the fact that climate change is spurring on the sixth mass extinction that this planet has ever experienced in millions and millions of years. And when you look at what the causes are of climate change, one of those causes is animal agriculture. The meat, dairy, egg sectors, they contribute far more greenhouse gases than most people think. And as much as the entire transport sector combined to climate change. So, you know, there's an interesting sort of relationship there because it's both our use of animals that's causing this crisis and our subjugation of animals who are sentient individuals causing this crisis. And at the same time, making it worse for other animals, the ones who are in the wild because of climate change. Uh, I think you hit on that, the sentience of animals. I think the biggest move that our governments could make if they wanted to improve the welfare of animals, companion animals, farm animals, wild animals, would be to improve the quality of science education from the earliest years in school. I know that's what influenced my children, who are now in their 30s. It influences me because I keep reading actual scientific papers and journals. But I think it's the absence of scientific education that makes people not realize how grave the situation is. And again, as I said, even more grave than climate change is the loss of diversity in uh, insects and in birds, reptiles, mammals. That is the single biggest threat. And again, not that I'm trying to underplay climate change, but I think that that education is necessary. Look, when I had to see that uh, film uh, was about two or three years ago, and I, I, I'm traumatized by it to this day, about our treatment of farm animals in the province of Quebec. I have to tell you, there was a whole long list of animals I could no longer even contemplate uh, consuming. And then when I tried to view that video that you've put up on your site about Penny the chicken, I have to tell you, I c I've watched many horror films. I could not get through this entire video oh, wow. to see yeah. how that chicken was saved. And I always thought chickens were sort of benign because unlike pigs, I love pigs. <laughs> unlike pigs, a chicken, a chicken is kind of a dinosaur and never seemed to be too swift to me. But when I when I saw what Penny experienced, you know, uh, 
this is past the issue of IQ. You know, dogs and pigs are so clever, we don't want to hurt them in any way because they, they, they have such a highly developed consciousness and sentience. But Penny the chicken is still a living being and to have been left to die in her own manure, in her own excrement. I, I, I wouldn't subject a grasshopper to such cruelty. Oh, I know. It really is horrific. And I'm glad that you found the video so touching because that's exactly why we, we made it. I think that it's not as easy for people to relate to chickens because like you point out, they're, they're less like us. They're not mammals. They don't have the same characteristics that we do or that cows or pigs do. So it can be difficult to relate, but I think the more that we understand and the more that we understand the science about chickens too, uh, the more people really start to appreciate that they're totally unique individuals, just like the dogs and cats and, you know, pigs or cows that we, that we know and love. And, and you're right. Penny's story was just so horrific. She was, for anyone who hasn't watched the video, you can find it on Animal Justice's YouTube page. Yeah. Please, everybody go to animaljustice.ca forward slash Penny. And if you can still order barbecue chicken or even scramble a couple of eggs after seeing that video, man, you'd have to be a psycho. I have to tell you, though, my daughter, again, speaking of generations, she's 37. She's a clinical psychologist. And she has told me because, you know, like, like I get it about not eating meat and I won't eat lamb and veal and, and I won't eat. I'm significantly reduced meat. That's the biggest challenge, awesome. right? Like actual cow meat. I will not, I have not touched pig in years because they're too intelligent. For me, it seems to have progressed by IQ. But I always thought chicken was like, oh, what's wrong with eating eggs? I said, what's wrong? We're not killing an animal. We're needing eggs. You know, the chicken's pecking around in the yard and scratching the dirt. And she goes back to her coop and lays a couple of eggs. And it's not, it's not a bad life. And Samantha told me that I was naive. And she was right. I am hugely naive. I could not imagine in a million years you could take a benign, placid, adorable chicken Put that chicken in a wire cage jammed up with four or six or eight other chickens so there's not even room to move. You can't peck. You can't scratch in the dirt. You can't hang around with the other chickens you like and stay away from the chickens who are gossips and who are mean. And and uh, how can you stay human and look at that? Oh, totally, totally. It, they're, the conditions that they're kept in on modern egg farms I think people don't usually realize how bad it really is. Like like you, we all have this idealized image of a chicken farm and them scratching in the dirt and going back into their hutches at night. But the reality is that they're largely kept in small battery wire cages where they're denied absolutely everything that makes life worth living. They never get to scratch in the dirt. They don't get to form their own social groups or spend time with their chicks because their eggs, of course, are taken away right away so they can be fed to us. It really is just a perversion of how nature intended the chickens to live. Do you have any idea what they do with the boy chicks? Oh, that's another very, very sad story. So, of course, boy chicks uh, don't produce eggs and they're useless to the egg industry. They are ground up alive. They're macerated to death uh, pretty much as soon as they hatch. Workers pull them out and uh, throw them into a macerator where they die um, immediately. It's horrific. Who does that to somebody's baby? How is that possible? To treat them with such massive cruelty, with such a lack of respect, has to harm the human psyche. I think that's why the meat industry, the dairy industry, the egg industry, it's why they work so hard to hide the truth from people is because they know that when we do see 
how they treat animals on modern farms, people are appalled by that because we're all compassionate people. Even if we're you know, still consuming animal products, it's, it's not because anybody actively wants animals to be harmed. It's usually because people don't know. Right. And again, we're talking about the secondary products where schnooks like me thought, well, no harm, no foul, because you're not killing the animal. To the contrary, the animal stays alive and is having what is presumably more or less a normal life. And I think that part of the problem is the depictions we live with. I'm a mother and a grandmother, so of course I'm always reading stories now to my grandchildren about, you know, stories of farm farm animals and life on the farm, and uh, I'm reading and and I'm teaching one to my grandchildren now that I read in Spanish and English about the, you know, the little industrious chicken, and the little chicken, you know, who who plants grain and grows the grain and threshes the grain and bakes the bread, and she's always, and the cow and the pig are always laughing at her because she's so industrious and they're so lazy. And and again, so the image that we're sharing within the family is that idyllic image that is completely false. And I think that uh, I, I think that this educational aspect is absolutely necessary. And I think it's probably already reached enough people because I think you've noticed that even the fast food chains today, have to offer more and more either vegetarian or vegan options because otherwise they'll have no more clientele left. Oh, yeah. The, the the rise of vegan options and vegetarian options in big food chains has been just astonishing and amazing to watch. And I think it's making a real impact. But so anyone in Canada who's listening to this has probably heard about the A&W Beyond Burger, which has just taken the country by craze. They uh, they couldn't keep it in stock for the first couple months that it was out. And of course, it's a plant-based burger that tastes exactly like a beef burger. And even uh, just the, the other week, Tim Hortons announced that it would be trialing a Beyond Burger uh, patty in some of its breakfast sandwiches as well. So everyone is starting to take notice and seeing that people's attitudes are shifting and they're looking for alternative products that are better for animals. Yeah, like for instance, I've not eaten any animal product from any fast food restaurant in, it feels like a hundred years because I know industrial farming techniques uh, are used for the animals that are provided to these fast food joints. So that's been like off for me for 20, 30 years. But I actually went and I tried the Impossible Burger at A&W and to my great surprise, it tasted just as deliciously unhealthy (laughs) as any other fast food burger. I was thinking, mm, this feels fatty and salty, and we can go back to the other reasons why none of us should be eating any fast food burgers, but it was certainly a very acceptable alternative in my mind. And the, see, the thing that I like when we turn to industry is that, particularly in today's world where there's such huge competitiveness on a, a global basis for all these chains, the pressure for these, these fast food chains or regular restaurant chains or grocery chains to meet the public demand for vegan and vegetarian products requires them. They can't wait like governments do and scratch their derrieres for a year or two while they figure out what law they're going to pass. They've got to provide the products and provide them now. And they have to respond to public concerns about ill treatment of farm animals. And they have to do it now. I remember when a couple of years ago they produced the first lab-grown meat that was real meat meat, but cultured from cells taken from a living steer who was not harmed in the process. And I remember I cried that day because I remember thinking for older people like me, for whom the transition is very difficult to abandon meat, I said, I realized, geez, within five years, I'm going to be able to have 
burgers or steaks to my heart's content and and nobody's even going to suffer a scratch yeah it's incredible actually and i think that we're poised to see a real revolution in the way people eat in the next few years you're you're right within a few years these products are supposed to be on the marketplace they're getting the price point lower so that they're going to be competitive with traditional slaughter-based meat products and then the question just kind of becomes well why would you choose meat where an animal had to die when you could just choose one that was uh, made in a, in a lab or a, a culturing tank. And stop climate change at the same time, because there won't be any more of those cow farts, those multitudinous cow farts that are in fact contributing to global warming, right? Yeah, no, it's brilliant. It solves a bunch of our problems just with, uh, with one simple change. I love it. And now we come to the other big population of animals on the planet, dogs, and especially pit bull-like dogs. I suppose you've heard of the hard work that I've been doing to stop breed-specific legislation here in Quebec. Oh, absolutely. You uh, and the firm, I know, have been at the forefront of fighting many cases to, to protect dogs like pit bulls or other dogs who are targeted by BSL and, and getting it repealed in the first place. Yeah, it was really awesome to get the Montreal ban repealed. It took a regime change to do it. And I'm so delighted we have our new mayor, Valerie Plant, who is super pro-environment, pro-animal. She also put an end to the horse caleches, the horse-drawn carriages, because conditions in um, downtown Montreal, like out, even out in the old Montreal near the port, are, are just, it, they're just not conditions anymore that a horse should have to support to draw a carriage. The living conditions are too too extreme. Absolutely. And it's just been amazing to see what's happened in Montreal. And, and uh, since Valerie Plant was elected, I mean, that, that election where she won, animal welfare was on the ballot for people. They were actually voting for the end of the collection industry. They were vo voting for the end of BSL legislation in Montreal. So it was really inspiring to see democracy be affected by uh, those animal policies. Well, that was a point that I made. I was a very, very early endorser of Mrs. Plant, and it's a point I made in a number of uh, press conferences that politicians better wake up to the fact that we are voting and that we are concerned with the welfare of the animals with whom we share our lives, our day-to-day -day -day lives, our dogs, our cats, uh, you know, the horses that we see in circuses and rodeos and uh, and out in the old port, and that, uh, that we now consider it a moral imperative to take better care of our animals. Absolutely. I think we're in the middle of a social revolution on France and, and the, the Montreal new regime change is certainly uh, reflective of that. But we've also seen on the federal level more and more people voting on animal protection uh, legislation as well and getting really inspired to contact their representatives and let them know that these issues are important. And that's why we're finally starting to see some laws getting close to being passed. So yeah, I mean, the law just follows society. When people are ready for something, when people want something bad enough, politicians have to respond. And we're seeing that now with animals. And it's amazing true. And it was a huge fight to prevent the province of Quebec from adopting uh, BSL. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, I went, I, I addressed the National Assembly. I brought Dr. Silversides, who's the head of the Department of Genetics at the University of Montreal's Faculty of Veterinary Medicine, who came and explained that uh, dogs have a very wide range of appearance, but there's very few genes that control appearance and they have no link 
linked to the genes that determine temperament. And of course, there's also the environment in which a puppy grows up that also is a big contributor to temperament. And uh, it, I, I'm so impressed that it convinced the government because all, all three parties were represented at the hearings that were conducted. And they understood that if you really want to protect public safety, you have to think of the entire population of dogs. And more important, you have to think about the idiot at the other end of the leash. Oops, I mean the human <laughs> at the other end of the leash. And that responsibility for dog safety lies in the hands of the human. And that was a very important public service message. I thought. Oh, I completely agree. It's, it's really, we've got to commend the uh, Quebec legislature for listening to that and for listening to reason and for not being swayed by the, the junk science that's out there and the ridiculous claims that somehow like banning pit bulls, banning Rottweilers, banning certain dogs is in any way, shape or form going to make society safer. Because as you point out, we know that that's just not how we prevent dog bites. That's not how we prevent dog attacks. We do that through education. We do that through safer communities and through responsible dog ownership. Right. So hence the important for all young people who are listening out there, kids, please stay in school. Please learn something about science and what and, and how close animals are to us and we to the animals around us. We're all animals. Some are furry, some are less furry. And that the importance, I think the best statement I thought was actually made in Quebec's animal welfare legislation, where they actually said that if you're raising an animal, and that should include your child, you you have to respect rules concerning cleanliness, living space, safety, and access to food and water. And that should apply to chickens like Penny the Chicken, who, by the way, folks, made a huge recovery. If you see what condition she was in and what she looks like now, um, it's, it's really a huge change. So that should be applying to our chickens. It should be applied to our the dogs and cats that live with us. And, you know, when you realize how many times in headlines here in Quebec, you hear a child who, who fell through the cracks in our youth protection system, and we have little kids two years old, six years old, dying at the hands of their parents and step-parents, you know, you realize that that charter of rights that we create for animals has got to serve as a social wake-up call that the, the respect of the care of the other is, is it's essential to morality. You know, it's, it's, it's a bigger thing than just... You know, like, I don't like the way sometimes we're portrayed, we animal rights advocates are like, oh, we're just, I don't know what, left-wing sillies or something. No, it's not. It's a huge moral message. When someone is under your care, two-legged or four-legged, you have to take proper care of them. And people who are in positions of authority must report to the authorities if someone is ill-taken care of. Like now, doctors will have to report with respect to dog bites if a dog has bitten someone severely. Um, I, I, I just don't want the result to be the the extermination of the dog in question yeah. right? but some, like re yeah, totally. rehab and refuge please folks but the notion that that animals need a charter of rights i would hope would be a wake-up call that children need more a charter of rights and i want to tell you when i started all this animal rights advocacy i swear to you my whole purpose was to improve vaccination rates for kids that's what got me involved oh, wow. and then i saw I swear to you, that was, I wanted to have mandatory medical insurance for all cats and dogs across the province of Quebec, including yearly sterilizations. And it was going to be part of my campaign, sterilize, sterilize, microchip and vaccinate 
your dog and your cat. And please remember to vaccinate your children too. Your children probably don't need to be on a leash, <laughs> but <laughs> then some maybe do. But at least please vaccinate. It's for the safety of your dog or your child, and for the safety of everybody else in your community. Yeah, and you know, part of the reason that we, that I care so much about animals, and I know you do, and other people who are involved in animal advocacy, it's because animals are really vulnerable. They uh, can't always report abuse when they experience it themselves. They really depend on others to help them out. And that same thinking applies to children. They're also very vulnerable individuals. They have less power than older human beings, uh, same with animals. And that's why it's really heartbreaking, I think, in a lot of situations when there's just no oversight, when you leave people to their own devices and there's no effective way for the government to oversee the, ch the conditions that maybe children are in or animals are in. Well, guess what? Some people, not everyone, but some people are going to mistreat them for economic reasons, for sadistic reasons, because they, they just have problems as human beings. And, and that's why I think it's so disturbing to me that in so many situations, the commercial use of animals is almost completely unregulated. There just aren't strong laws. Oftentimes there aren't permits required to keep animals. There's no licensing system in many situations and no public inspections or oversight. And I think we would do, be doing a lot better for many segments of society if we just kept an eye on these things to a greater extent. Well, the SPCA told me specifically it was so hard to get the government of Quebec to adopt any animal welfare legislation to begin with that they were just grateful that they, they were willing to take such important steps for companion animals and that the big cha challenge now, which apparently the government is looking at, is to extend a lot of these protections to um, farm animals. And, you know, I hate to sound sort of morbid and, and cruel about it. But at the end of the day, if you're out there and you're an animal eating person, um, like, don't you want to think that the animal's going to have been well raised in safe conditions and in good health and not drowning in its excrement and not secreting toxic chemicals in, in his body or her body because he's in overcrowded conditions or can't live out his biological imperatives? You don't want to be eating a sick and tortured, abused animal. I, I know that sounds cruel the way I'm saying it, but I, I sometimes I feel it's better to to make an appeal to people's natural selfishness to make them consider their position. Yeah, I think that's an important part of advocacy. It's it's not enough just for the vegans and the vegetarians and the animal rights advocates to, to contact the government and ask for better conditions for animals and for binding rules and inspections. It's the kind of thing where we need everybody in society to step up and care about this, meat eaters and not meat eaters alike. So yeah, I don't think we can leave anybody out of this conversation. Yeah, for sure. What do you think, Camille, about the notion of whether animals should be entertainment, like marine land or the circus? Or Oh, well, you know, I, from what I'm seeing, I think people are rapidly finding that to be completely unacceptable in this day and age. I, I always say about zoos or aquariums like Marineland or SeaWorld or the Vancouver Aquarium is that if they didn't already exist, nobody would invent them today. Our attitudes have moved so far away from the idea that it's okay to take these beautiful creatures out of the wild, take them away from their families, put them in tiny cages, put them in little concrete bathtubs, and then watch at them while they do tricks. I mean, that's just not something that people think is okay anymore. And what's so exciting about that, Aunt France, is that the law is starting to catch up. So we've got Bill S203 right now in the House of Commons. We're expecting that to pass before the next election, and Bill S203 would ban the keeping of whales and dolphins in captivity right across the country and ban the breeding. But how, 
But how then would we sensitize people to the plight of, of these mammals? Yeah, that's, that's a question that often comes up. People say we really need zoos and aquariums so people can understand more about these animals. But when you actually look at the research, and again, the science comes back to this question of science and evidence. Uh, people who visit facilities like this, zoos or aquariums, they spend just a few minutes looking at the displays usually. They often don't read any educational component to it at all. And they're going there. They say that they're going there because they want to be entertained, not educated. Ah. And, you know, I think that, that we've now got so many different ways to teach people about animals. We've got incredible documentaries shot in high definition footage where you can really get a sense of what whales and dolphins are doing in the wild in their natural habitats, uh, that we just don't need to keep them in cages. And, you know, if you ask any five or six-year-old kid what their favorite animal is, they could probably tell you everything that um, they know about dinosaurs, and dinosaurs don't even exist anymore. So there's so many other ways to learn about the animals we share the planet with. True that. In a world of 4K images and IMAX theaters, you can be, you can drown in surround sound uh, with all the depictions of animals in their natural habitats, which of course is certainly makes more sense. But you know, I remember being in Holland and uh, visiting a place called Appenhöl, which is an open air primate it's not a zoo because there's not a single cage in the place. Uh, if anything, it's the humans who are restricted and where the humans can be. And the various primates who are there are, are walking around and climbing trees and they're on rocks everywhere. The only primates who are isolated from direct contact with humans are the gorillas who have an, um, an island. And there's actually a fence to keep the humans separate because I think that there'd be a certain danger for us. But other than that, you're in a temperate climate where animals where the animals can live on the outside and they may not be in their country of origin, but they are living entirely naturally. Moms are running around with babies and they jump on you and they try to find where you're hiding food, which is why you have to keep all your personal effects in a zippered, locked bag or they'll rob everything out of your pockets. And you, I had a mom sit on my lap holding her baby on her front. And then she looked at me, tried to find some treats. I had no treats. So she peed on me and then jumped away. And I had to walk around up in her all day with monkey pee soaking into my shorts. It was very wonderful. But I still appreciated it because she was as free as I. What do you think of that as an environment? Yeah, and you know, this is really interesting because it reminds me of a conversation that's starting to be had among a lot of zoos, which is the idea that zoos should shift away from a display model where animals are on exhibition for entertainment and become sanctuaries where they can become a place of refuge for animals rescued, say, from the exotic pet industry, uh, from the zoo trade, from other situations where they were kept in captivity. And I think that something like this is the future. And we, we already know that there's tons of exotic animals who are being kept often illegally, even if it is legal, certainly inappropriately on people's private property, even in Canada. So these animals need somewhere to go. And why shouldn't we convert zoos for that purpose? Turns out we have a huge chimp sanctuary in the province of Quebec. I've never visited it, but now that you mentioned, I read a wonderful book and it was created specifically to provide a refuge for chimps that were saved from labs, from animal testing, who obviously cannot be returned to the wild because they've been born into captivity or captured very young and raised in captivity. And I think that's the awesome model because I think the message that has to be sent to the public is that our planet is sick. 
I don't want to over-dramatize, but our planet is sick. The even animals that are not threatened by extinction have seen their populations decimated. And that if we don't have to, if we don't assume a role of caretaking and caregiving to uh, animals on the earth, like we, we threaten our own existence. We cannot exist in a world where our, we are the only animal. It's completely. It's, it's, it's just unbelievable. I, I don't know why that specific, that message has to be accentuated even beyond global uh, climate change and global warming, even beyond that, because animals can survive and adapt to all kinds of changes in climate. I'm not saying they wouldn't be in a catastrophic element, but we've adapted. We can adapt. The What we can't adapt is the loss of biodiversity. Yeah. It also represents a loss in research to find medicines and treatments. Oh, yeah. It's catastrophic on so many levels that we're just completely decimating all the other species on this planet. If you look at, I've seen graphs of this before, and it's actually crazy to contemplate, but the biomass on the planet, most of it is farmed animals, and most of the rest of it is human beings. And then the wild population that's still left, biomass-wise, is just becoming tinier and tinier. Um, you know, Anne France, one of my favorite books of all time is Farley Mowat's book, Sea of Slaughter. And it chronicles what it was like when the first settlers arrived on the east coast of North America and how many animals there were. There were great auks, there were so many walruses, there were even polar bears down much farther south than we see them today. The biodiversity was just staggering. And I'm from the East Coast. If I'm from Prince Edward Island. If you walk outside today, I mean, there's no more bears in PEI. There's no more deers. Uh, you, you really don't see very many wild animals. But 500 years ago, if you went outside, you'd probably see a ton of wild animals. We just don't have that anymore. Right. And it's a, a loss in the richness of our lives as humans. You know, there's a, there's only so many other fellow humans I want to look at during the day. One of the things I enjoy very much where we go bicycling is the opportunity to see animals living more normally, where we go out toward federal and provincial parks and you actually see deer and foxes and raccoons. And, you know, it's a, such a tiny number of animals, but it's still better than what can be the quite sterile urban landscape, you know. Um, but I love you this notion that there's this expansion to refuges. What could we do, normal, ordinary people, to encourage zoos to make these transitions? Because people would pay good money to come see this. Yeah, I think telling zoos that you're not going to patronize them until they transition to more of a sanctuary model, I think that's a really good step. There are some zoos who are already taking a few steps in this regard, like the, the Detroit Zoo has done some good work. Uh, you know, even the Toronto Zoo recognized in 2011 that it was just not appropriate for it to keep elephants there anymore and they send elephants to a sanctuary where they've got acres and acres to roam and lots of space and a more natural environment and i think just explaining to zoos that you're not going to patronize them until they make this shift is good i also encourage anyone to check out sanctuaries that that do exist already so there's a ton of farmed animal sanctuaries right across canada um, just do a little research and you can probably find one near you. And that's a great chance to meet cows, meet pigs, chickens, turkeys, goats, llamas, uh, these animals that are traditionally raised for food and people often don't think about. You, you can actually meet them. Um, there's even a primate sanctuary right outside Montreal, I believe. So there, there's sanctuaries out there for all kinds of animals. And it's good to give them donations, support them financially and help spread the word. I like that. Giving donations. There's nothing like a few bucks to help finance a good cause. I like that. 
On that note, Camille, I, I, I kind of have a feeling I've met my sister in disguise here at the <laughs> other end of this computer connection, and I feel relieved. So I have to tell you, when I was in court a few weeks ago trying to save the life of this pit bull dog, uh, Shota, I was trying to explain to the court that with our animal welfare legislation in Quebec, uh, that we should view that as a charter of rights for animals. And I remember the judge looking at me and blinking and sort of, he looked at me like I was an alien and I had to stand my ground and stomp my foot and say, yes, this animal welfare legislation is a charter of rights for animals and that's how we have to treat it now that we recognize that animals have sentience. And uh, yeah, yeah, he threw out my demand and, uh, and I realized there's still a lot of work to do to change the more atavistic amongst us who, who are not ready to embrace the notion of animal rights. But I'm fighting that battle in the Court of Appeal, not to worry. Oh, I, I don't good. give up easy. <laughs> You're a fighter. And, that, and that's good because that's what animals need. The animals absolutely need lawyers fighting on their behalf. They're at such a disadvantage, as you know, because they don't have the same agency that we do to go to court and, and fight for themselves. So they really rely on us to speak up for them. And it's definitely slow going. Our legal system has such a long way to go. But I do think it's incredible to sit back and contemplate how much things have changed in the last 10 years. We've seen just such a raft of new provincial legislation. We're seeing federal bills being passed, Montreal making some really progressive steps. So I'm feeling really optimistic that in the long run, we're going to win this fight. We're going to usher in a better world for animals and that people's attitudes are changing along with that. Yeah, I love that optimistic attitude, Camille. It's really been a pleasure talking today. Such a joy to be on with you, Anne France. Good luck in the Court of Appeal. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to our guest, Camille Labchuk, from the Paw and Order podcast and the Animal Justice Group here in Canada. Your thoughts on that conversation, Anne France? I thought it was pretty uh, awesome to hook up with Camille. Um, Sometimes it's refreshing to be able to speak with somebody who shares your own philosophical perspective, particularly on an issue that's as uh, large and almost overwhelming as this, as animal rights. And animal rights advocacy also has such a, a downside. It's so hard getting people to the same page. So it's refreshing to feel a little less alone. So it looks like BSL is over in Quebec, but we're still waiting for the official update to the law. We're going to keep you posted, as well as on the Shadow case. Um, and perhaps a quick update on, on the pit bull closest to your life, Mr. Spot. How is he doing? Oh, Mr. Spot is wonderful. He doesn't know that he's half a dog. He is such a reminder that the anxiety and depression that often afflicts us is is sort of almost an autoimmune disorder, if I can analogize. Like, he knows he's half a dog, but it doesn't bother him. He still knows he's faster than every other dog in the house. He, in his wheelchair, he flies downstairs. Uh, he, the, just yesterday, he, without his wheelchair, went into the garage because there's a carpet on the step. So he just banged his way down, plop, 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 <laughs> into the garage because there was a leftover dog bone there that Fiona hadn't finished. And the last step is a doozy to my garage. He didn't care. And then coming back, he knows he has to wait for my help. He's a purse dog. He always has to have a handle on him so I can pick him up. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, he was actually using his massive strength in his sh in his shoulders and forearms and a little bit of counter pressure in his back legs that he doesn't really control that well. 
to push himself up the stairs by sheer force of will. Now, why can't we think of overcoming our difficulties like that? You know, he knows it. He knows. He's sentient enough to know what he is and how he is and who he is. And he knows he has to wait for help up the stairs, but he just doesn't let it get him down. And I wish I could just borrow a little of that uh, optimism and, and perseverance and a pretty perseverant lady as it is. We're going to post some videos of Mr. Spot again soon to your Facebook page. So do like Anne France on Facebook. And Anne France, a further reading suggestion on this topic on animal welfare. Uh, yes, there's a book that quite inspired me called The Chimps of Fauna Sanctuary, written by Andrew Westall. And believe it or not, not only is it a Canadian book, but it's about a chimp, a primate sanctuary right here in the province of Quebec. So it you know, gives us a little bit of national pride there. And this is uh, this author did volunteer work at this uh, primate sanctuary and he wrote a book about it and these were chimps who were saved from the most abhorrent treatment and that's being uh, lab subjects so many of these uh, chimps were separated from their moms at birth they were injected with all kinds of diseases and viruses that afflict us because after all chimpanzees share nine over 99 percent of their dna with us so the idea was to watch the progression of disease in these helpless animals then they'd be given all kinds of untested medications they'd be operated on that they'd be kept isolated and socially deprived for the purpose of other experiments, psychological experiments. And some of these chimps had literally been driven mad. I mean, after all, they're our closest cousins. So the idea was to rescue these animals as, of course, testing, uh, lab testing on these animals has, um, has become remarkably unpopular and to try to give them an opportunity at a reasonably normal life in a natural environment because obviously you can't return them to the wild. It's a very, very moving book and, uh, and actually was very lovely to read because it's still an upbeat subject. It's still about overcoming adversity. That's all for today's episode of The Goldwaters. Join us next time, and don't forget to check out past episodes at thegoldwaters.ca. Like The Goldwaters on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll be back very shortly with a new episode. Uh, drop us an email if you have any ideas or feedback. Talk at thegoldwaters.ca. I'm Dan Delmar. Until next time, my friends. Here. Fiona, okay. go in there. Fiona, come say hi. Fiona, come. 13 and a half years old. Oh, hello, oh, sweetheart. Oh, yes. Fiona, who's a good girl? Who's a good girl? Yes. <laughs>